Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is May 11th, 2014. My name is Melanie C., a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator. The share ID for Friday, May 9th, 2014, is 6293. 6293. This morning, A Vision for You presents... I had to find a power by which to live. It's a journeying experience through step two with a focus on chapter four of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Step two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. What if I do not believe? What if I cannot believe? Page 44, paragraph two of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, To one who feels he's an atheist or agnostic, such an experience seems impossible. But to continue as he is means disaster, especially if he is an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. To be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. On page 47 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, It says, when therefore we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. The definition of conception is something conceived. It's equivalent to, it's to develop, to form, to imagine, to experience. Continuing my reading, do not let any prejudice you may have against spiritual terms deter you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. On page 46 at the bottom, the writers, the authors say from their experience, to us, the realm of spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive. To speak to us today about this very critical topic is Joe M., a recovered compulsive overeater from Minnesota. We're delighted to be able to have her to come in and share her experience through this very difficult decision to make. Good morning, Joe, and welcome to A Vision for You. Good morning, Melanie, and good morning, A Vision for You. Very happy to be here. My name is Joe. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I will talk about my experience with coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. And I first want to tell you what it was like for me as an impulsive overeater. I weighed 254 pounds, 120 pounds heavier than I am now. At five, four and a half, 250 pounds was mid-obesity, which I had so much extra weight on me at risk of contracting a disease that could kill me. I sat in front of the TV every night binging for several hours, raiding the refrigerator and cupboard, eating baked goods, candy, salty snacks, creamy foods, sugary foods. I would go to Super America, which is a convenience store chain, and I would barrel through the aisle picking up bags and boxes and cartons, go out to my car, lock the door, rip open the first bags, shove the first bite of food into my mouth, and lurch back as the sugar rushed to my head and I had a convulsion of pleasure and excitement followed by a massive binge after which I felt physically sick and internally demoralized. I did this over and over and over again, and the misery that it caused me didn't stop me. 
I went to fast food joints, usually through the drive-thru, and get the greasy, salty, and sugary food they had and shoved it into my mouth as fast as I possibly could. When I went to the movies, I had to carve out enough time before the movies to stand in line to get the concessions, a big bag of popcorn, a big box of candy. Eventually, those theaters started offering a more variety of concessions, pizza, ice cream bars, pretzels, baked goods. So I got those as well. I would go into the dark movie theater, consume all of that food while losing myself in the story of the movie and escape. And I loved the darkness and no one was seeing me eat. And it was this perfect combination for a compulsive overeater like me. But then when the lights came on, depression hit because then I had to face my life again. Um, I would bake large batches of sugar, flour, and fat and consume it all within just a couple of days without sharing it with uh, any housemates. Um, One time I remember having a baked good in my hand and saying to myself, what do I have if I don't have this? And the answer was nothing. I don't have anything if I don't have this. It was almost like my whole world um, was contained in this bite of sugary baked good in my hand. I remember in my 20s coming home from work having instant potatoes, melted cheese, and orange juice for dinner because I thought I should get some kind of nutrition in me before I did my real eating, which was going to be the large batch of cookies I'd made. And so I had to eat one of those after another, after another, after another, sitting in front of the television. I remember going on bike rides in the town where I lived at the time, and after the bike ride, I would stop for a creamy, cold dessert, and then I'd go home and make a big dinner, and I mean really big dinner, and eat the whole thing and then have more dessert afterward. I remember one time eating the biggest bag there was of a certain kind of chip. I want to say it was a 72-ounce bag, and I ate the whole thing in one sitting, and I was sick to my stomach for three days. I didn't eat food for three days. I drank tea. And I didn't eat anything. It was like, you know, one of the longer food hangovers I had had. But that did not stop me from my eating. I remember belonging to a bowling league for a year. We would bowl on Wednesday nights. And after bowling, I would stop at a convenience store for a large box of baked goods and eat the whole thing. I would go for stretches eating certain foods or certain combinations of foods. Uh, During one stretch, I ate Cheetos and blueberry ice cream. Another stretch, I'd eat whole boxes of Pop-Tarts. In college, we had an all-you-can-eat buffet, and boy, did they take advantage of that, including multiple desserts. We had vending machines around campus, and I'd get something there and go into a bathroom stall to eat it because I couldn't stand anyone seeing me eat. Being at parties made me very anxious because I couldn't pig out the way I really wanted to. There were times when I would pile the party plate high and go sit down with people who invariably stared at all of my food, and that really irritated me. I didn't want them looking at all the food I was going to eat, and even though I was embarrassed, I ate all that food anyway. So the the social environment didn't stop me. Uh, And then when the party was over, um, I'd drive in my car and I'd go somewhere on the way home and get more food. I had stashes of food in my car, you know, like under the seat, in the glove compartment, in my purse, in my dresser drawer. Those stashes never lasted very long, but they were there. Um, Loading up on uh, sugar and fat and salt and floury products, um, was a big deal for me when I was working. I had where I was working on the ones, and I would go in on Saturday and just I would feel so lonely because I'd be the only person there. And in order for me, I felt to get through that, I had to have this fortification, and the only fortification I knew to have was food. And so I would stop at the grocery store before going into work, and I had this big bag. And I remember sitting at my desk, reaching down at the bag just to feel it with my hand, saying to myself, I'm going to be okay. I have what I need. 
I'm going to be okay. It was almost like that bag of food was my mother and I was a little kid. I did so much overeating in my car, you could not see the floor of the back of my car. It was littered with cartons, boxes, packages, and bottles. Um, Bob, like, you know, not alcohol, but, you know, like orange juice and tomato juice and stuff like that. Um, Sharing food was absolutely out of the question. Anytime someone suggested that, I felt very antagonistic because sharing food requires restraint so that the other person can get their share. And restraint was against the law in my world when it came to food. I needed a no-holds-barred, free-for-all experience with my eating. Um, I induced vomiting one time after a day-long binge. I actually was in Overeaters Anonymous uh, when this happened. I had my OA meeting that morning. I went to work later in the day, and I ended up being all hung on vending machine food. And, and toward the end of the day, I thought, I am not going to wake up with another food. After all the food hangovers, I'd had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of food hangovers. I thought, not going to wake up tomorrow with a food hangover. So I called Walgreens. Do you have syrup of Ipecac? Yes, we do. How late are you open? 10 o'clock. Great. Thank you very much. Got off work at 7.30, went to Walgreens, purchased the syrup of Ipecac, read the instructions, drank the prescribed amount, and I don't know why I drank the prescribed amount rather than the whole bottle. There was enough fear in me. I'd never, I had never done this before. Anyway, I drank the prescribed amount, and 20 minutes later, I was vomiting my brains out. Did that stop my overeating? Was that my last binge? No, it was not. My head was filled with food thoughts multiple times a day. Do I have enough money in my purse for the concessions? Okay, I'm actually store. I'm getting some items here, but will I want to buy something later, and do I have the cash for that? If I don't have the cash for that, I have to remember to get cash back when I write a check. Uh, I have that goodie in my purse, but is it closed up all the way so that it doesn't spill out before I can get to it? I better check on that. Is my roommate going to be home? If she's going to be home, how can I get past her and her boyfriend in the living room so I can go into the bedroom with my stash and binge without them seeing what I'm doing? What time does the store close? I think it closes at 10. It's 8.30 now. I better get out the door and get to that store to load up before it's too late because back in those days, Stores actually closed. We did the 24 hours like we do now. Um, are my coworkers looking at the direction of my desk right now? Is it safe to take this goodie out of my desk and shove it into my mouth without them asking me a question that requires me to answer while I have my mouth full? There's the party table. Can I get my way over there without someone stopping me to talk? If can I can I make a beeline? Oh shoot! Someone has inter, someone has um, intercepted me. Uh, they're now talking, and I don't want to talk. I don't want to listen to them. I don't want to say that. I just want to make my way over to that party table. Will you shut up? A party is not for talking. A party is for eating. Uh, don't they understand that? Where's that stash of candy? Oh yeah, it's in my dresser drawer. Oh oh okay. Well, I found it, but there's not much left. Um, well, when can I get out of here and get some more without my without my housemate knowing that I'm leaving? Okay, you, whoever you are, you have made dinner, and you have put fresh fruits and vegetables on the table. Uh, You know, fresh fruits and vegetables, they take up too much room in my stomach. I need to save room for the good stuff. I'm not eating that fruits and vegetables. I've got to save the room in my stomach for sugar and flour and salt and fat. Pop, no, I'm not wasting my stomach space on pop. I'm giving my stomach room for the good stuff. Hard candy, forget it. I can't chew it. Therefore, I can't get high on it, 
and I'm dispensing with hard candy. I'll, I'll use it as a tide-me-over until I can get my hands on the good stuff. And by the way, I'm really irritated at anyone who invented hard candy. They certainly did not have food addicts in mind when they invented hard candy. Eating and eating and eating and eating, fixating and obsessing and ruminating about eating, unable to focus until I got my fix. My world was saturated with overeating, and this had gone on for years and years and years. Back in my childhood, I was overeating at meals. I got into junior high. I was starting to have treats at lunch. We had this uh, a la carte line. You'd have your regular lunch, you'd eat your regular lunch, and then they had this a la carte line that they offered students that had, you know, the junky snacky foods, and you could buy one item, you know, at a time of that. And so I, and I started doing that. Also in junior high, I started um, stopping at convenience stores to get a quick fix. This was, um, you know, in between meals. Also in junior high, I was doing a lot of babysitting, so I'd be stealing food from my babysitting clients. I really enjoyed the experience of babysitting. I liked the experience of earning money. I liked the responsibility of it. I liked the kids. I really enjoyed the kids who I babysat for. But invariably, there would come a time in the evening when I'm like, when, when can they go to bed? When is their bedtime? Let me get them into bed. Because when they're in bed, then I can start my real eating. Because my babysitting clients invariably had that junky food in their refrigerator and their pantry that I could that I could get in and get. And in my home, my mother was very careful about nutrition, so we didn't have that junky food like floating around our house like other like other households did. In high school, my eating was getting worse. Um, I started eating in bathroom stalls. I would stop off uh, before high school and get some sugary thing, go, go into school, go into a bathroom stall, rip open the package, shove it in my mouth so I could get a fix before my first class. I shoplifted food in high school. Um, that was the only thing I ever shoplifted was food, the sugary, junky, salty uh, stuff. Um, I remember they would have uh, fundraisers in high school where they would be selling you know, candy. And boy, that was very exciting because then, then I could get a fix during the day legally, like while in class. I remember my sister had one of these and she had this candy underneath her bed. She and I shared a bedroom and she had this can boxes of candy underneath her bed to sell for her fundraiser. And I remember, I, I remember it was as clear as day. This was like 30 years ago. And I was um, laying on the bed, and I was reading a book, and I just kept reaching down, getting one box after another, after another, after another, and eating that candy. And I don't remember if I paid for it. I used to be a figure skater. Uh, I would go into the, the vending machine at the ice arena and get the sugary junk there. Um, so this eating had been with me since early childhood. Now, I suffered because of what I was doing. I suffered mentally. Um, I worried about my health. Um, I felt guilty about what I was doing to my body. I felt demoralized because I had no control over what I was doing. I recoiled whenever I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. It was like shocking, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm that heavy because I thrived on denial. I mean, I didn't want what I was doing. Uh, I also suffered physically. I had a hard time walking up and down stairs. I couldn't stand uh, very easily at all. Gravity was really pulling on, you know, 254 pounds. Gravity is pulling on you really hard. Um, I had to sit or lean against something everywhere I went. Um, my knees hurt. I had food hangovers every morning, lethargy. I remember waking up in the morning and sitting up in bed. I had food, I had, um, head rushes and my stomach would gurgle. 
and my face would feel flush. I had a very hard time. In the, um, I was out of breath very easily. I couldn't get in and out very easily or in and out of my car because of my considerable heft. I could not run when I was in a hurry. Uh, I couldn't even walk across a straight floor without being out of breath, even when I walked slowly. I remember working at a place where they had a first floor and a second floor, and I'd be on the first floor, and there'd be all these stairs going up to the second floor, and I would grab onto the railing, and I would go up those stairs as slowly as I could, and I was still breath when I got to the top. Now, you know, this was, I was in my early 30s, and yet it was as if I was literally person because my mobility had been so compromised. Well, because of this suffering, I did do something about my eating many, many times. I went on all diets. I mean, when I was a teenager, I joined Weight Watchers and Weight Loss Clinic. Um, when I was an adult, I went to an outpatient eating disorders clinic. And I, I had many attempts at controlled eating using willpower. Okay, I'm going to eat three meals a day. I'm not going to eat anything in between. I'm going to control my portions. I'm not going to eat any of my junk food. Um, and there were times when I would lose weight, and sometimes lose all the excess. I could not keep the obsession at bay, and I went back to the food with a vengeance, gaining more weight than what I had lost in the first place. And after all that pain and all those attempts at trying to control it myself, I did the unthinkable. I came to Overeaters Anonymous. Now, you have to understand what a big deal this was for me because I come from an intellectual background. I come from a family that taught me if you apply your intellect, you will be able to overcome just about anything. If you have a problem, you think about the problem, and then you apply problems. And I had for a long time that I should be able to apply my intellect to my eating, and that didn't, that didn't work. It, it just flat out did not work. And for me to come to a 12-step program where, that I had looked down on, I didn't know much about, frankly, I didn't know anything about 12-step programs. Um, I, I just assumed they were for whims. And that was another thing. You know, I, I allowed myself to believe all my other assumptions. So I came to Overeaters Anonymous really a broken person. I was beside myself. I was in a lot of misery. And when I came to Overeaters Anonymous, I started learning about this notion of powerlessness, which I first thought. I mean, I remember coming home from my very first OA meeting, reading that, you know, first step, we admitted we were powerless over food, and I scratched it out, and I, I wrote in something like, we admitted we were powerless over our attempts to solve this ourselves, or something like that. But the, that word powerlessness just sent me into a, into a, into a mental state of being very resistant, reluctant to to accepting that idea. Um, but uh, after so much repeated misery with the overeating, and after it was about four years in Overeaters Anonymous when I had had experiences of, you know, being in and out of the food, um, you know, being in and out of abstinence, um, and knowing, I think knowing something more was required of me, eventually I did come to accept my powerlessness over food, that it had really defeated me, and I realized that of my own power, I was at the mercy of this addiction. I had to admit defeat physically, which meant I had to accept that I had a body that could not handle certain foods. 
and that took a while. I mean, I won't go into that this morning, but that was a process, and I had to, you know, do trial and error and talk to people and listen to what other people were doing and um, accept that I really have a very sensitive body that simply cannot handle certain foods and cannot handle certain amounts of foods, you know, excess food of any kind. And then I had to admit defeat mentally, which meant I had to accept I had a mind that could not help kind of thinking. So defeated, wow, I mean, that is a whole 100% defeat. Uh, the addiction had beat me to a bloody pulp. And once I admitted defeat, I needed somewhere to go. I had to run to. Because my history was whenever I had been defeated before, it was an experience of humiliation. It was an experience of someone or something else forcing a defeat, and it was a very disheartening, disempowering experience. And so this new, ex- you know, this experience of defeat had to be different. Because if it was not different than the humiliation to feel, I was not going to stick around. So I needed some, somewhere else to go after the defeat experience so that I could find a way through and out of the addictive life. So when I came to Overeaters Anonymous, I knew there was something about me that a diet would not fix, that any conventional weight loss program or food control program would not, could not fix. But I didn't know what it was that fixed me. I had, certainly I had hopeful experiences while in the meetings. Um, I was in this middle place, this strange, I don't know what I'm doing here feeling, but I don't know where else to go. I looked at you. I find comfort in the social experience of being with compulsive overeaters, first of all, who gave me language for what I had done, compulsive overeating. I had heard that term before. I talk about these food experiences with other people who knew exactly what, what I meant because they had been through the same thing. And I found great relief at hearing stories that were just like mine. I thought I was the only person who stole babysitting clients. I thought I was the only person who ate in bathroom stalls. I thought... I was the only person isolated myself in my car and the only one who avoided going home so I could stay out and eat. And you all talked about that. I mean, you were telling those same stories, and it was, there was great relief in that, like, oh, I'm not the only one. Um, so I looked at you. I mean, I looked at those meetings, and I listened to you at those meetings, and you showed me and you told me what it was like for you. And I was able to focus attention on that and pin my hopes initially on that as a way to ride through, you know, that in-between state. Um, and I don't think I would have called it an in-between state at the time. I think I, I, think I knew fairly early on that once, once I had been to my first couple of OA meetings, like, oh, I knew this was the place for me. Um, and I believed your experiences. Um, I mean, there I was, I was at 254 pounds, really, you know, having admitted defeat, something in me had been defeated, and I looked at you, I believed your weight loss. I believed your improved relationships. I believed that you were less reactive and more effective. I believed your marriage is saved and that your parenting was better. I, you were a better employee and so on. And all those stories that you shared at the meeting, I believed. And I had to have that experience first. I had to see in others something better that was made manifest. 
I don't know that I quite believed that it was possible for me yet, but I did believe it had happened for you. And believing it had happened for you was one of the key things that kept me coming back to the meetings. Um, I was in a way for four years, and during that time, uh, I was in and out of evidence. I had you know, various versions of a food plan that I had constructed myself. I used sponsors statically. You know, I used a sponsor if I felt like it, and I didn't use a sponsor and feel like it, and mostly I didn't feel like it. Uh, I did not see the big book as a set of my life. Uh, I was, and at, at one point, um, after about four years, I was very close to going back into the sugar. I had another binge. I had a couple binges earlier that year, and I'd gotten off sugar yet again, and I was just a hair's breadth from going back into it. And this was very dangerous for me. I remember at night at the grocery store when I was buying my dinner and I wanted the sugar so badly, I was just, I felt like I was going to burst out of my skin. And I got out of there with the whitest of white knuckles. It was a very dangerous place. Sugar is a top inside my system. And I had no faith at that time that I would be able to get off sugar again if I ever went back to it. And shortly after this, a new OA meeting came to town that carried the message of free in its purest form. And that message was, if you are a low-bottom compulsive overeater, you must do two things to recover. You must get abstinent, and you must work the steps using the big book method. And I saw that message in front of me. I heard that message in front of me. I had never heard that before. I had never seen it so clearly communicated. And I wanted the recovery that I saw in front of me. It was very powerful. It was very attractive. So I grabbed on, and I started doing OA, I actually started doing the program of recovery, I should say. Um, that's really where my recovery began. I got a new sponsor, and I allowed that person to walk me through getting a completely sober food plan. And when I started following that completely sober food plan, I felt like the earth underneath me had shifted because I not only had surrendered all of my binge foods, I had also now committed to eating certain amounts of abstinent foods at certain meal times, no foods in between, and I was committing my food ahead of time. To this new sponsor. Now, I reported my food in after the fact uh, to, a, to a previous sponsor. Now, I was committing it ahead of time. Like, whoa, I'm really in this now. Um, this was a brand new level of humility, honesty, and accountability with my food. And so, this put me fully inside the abstinent experience, fully conceding to my innermost self that I was a compulsive overeater and that my life had become unmanageable. And having those kinds of boundaries around the food forced what happened next. I was confronted face-to-face with the next step. I was in the fully abstinent state. Now I was in a position where I was being asked to go further. Abstinence could never be the end goal, and I knew that. I had had enough experiences of abstinence in OA and before I came to OA that I knew by itself abstinence was not the answer. So this brings me to the focus of my talk today. We had to find a power by which we could live. Well, I had taken step one. I had admitted I was powerless over food, that my life had become unmanageable. Now it was time to take step two. We believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I'm an addict, which means I will get my fix one way or the other. I will either get my fix with the food or I will fix by taking a set of acts laid out in the big book, which will produce what they call a psychic change. And I began to understand that it was a psychic change that I was after. Unlike my experiences before Overeaters Anonymous, where I thought the goal was weight loss, 
and different than when I was in OA but not working the program where I thought the focus was, you know, get absent and just go to meetings. You know, be a member of the fellowship. That that's kind of the end goal. Now we're starting to understand uh, the end goal is actually something very different. So in that fully abstinent state, I could either come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, or I could go back to the food. And and that was a pretty simple decision, not necessarily an easy decision, but but simple. Uh, coming to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity took risk on my part because what if this power greater than myself betrayed me? Because I certainly had had many experiences of that in my life. There were powers greater than me who betrayed me. They abused me. They neglected me. They didn't pay attention to my needs. They turned on me. And I could mention, you know, there are people or institutions that I had had that experience with Now I'm being asked to come to believe in a power greater than myself and believe that that power is going to restore me to sanity. Not that that power is going to defeat me. I've already been defeated by the addiction. Not that that power is going to humiliate me. Not that that power is going to squish me down and make me smaller than who I am, but that that power is going to restore me to sanity. What if it didn't deliver sanity? What if it didn't do for me what I had seen it do for others. I mean, you're asking me to take a really big leap here, and I really don't like you. I don't like you for calling on me to take a leap. Because of the hell I had been through, however, I was willing to take that risk because at this point, nothing left to lose. And I felt my only option was to go ahead and believe that this power which I had seen work in others, could also work in me. I remember my sponsor at the time telling me, there will come a day when all this will feel normal to you. And I said, I believe you. And I meant it. I had to believe her. I made a decision in that moment to believe her. In the big book, step two is laid out in the chapter, We Agnostics. The first number of times I read this chapter, I was very angry at it. It really raised my shackles. And it raised my shackles because reading it in a very narrow light. I was looking at passages and I was to the verse, oh, you're trying to make me believe in a supernatural being. I don't believe in a supernatural being. I'm an addict who wants recovery. I have noticed in religious indoctrination. And something funny though Instead of closing the book and disregarding this, um, I stuck with it because I, I believed at that point that the instructions in the big book were the only thing that were going to save me. And I, I forced myself to stick with the chapter and I challenged myself to think about the chapter differently. I remember, I remember the day. I was so angry. I was sitting there. I was just so angry at what they were saying. And I, I, fortunately, I was able to say, okay, Joe, just take a pause here. Step back and take a pause. What is going on? Just, just step back. Okay. These were alcoholics who were dying of alcoholism. They were dropping like flies. 
and they were desperate to find something by which they could live. And they grabbed on, and they found something by which they could live. Now, this is how they're describing it. These are the words they're using. But for heaven's sake, Joe, understand the bigger, let's look at the bigger picture here. Let's not get bogged down with any particular verbiage in the chapter. And let's remember this. And when I did that, the meaning of this chapter changed for me. And I realized that I knew that because the big book had the only instructions for recovery and I did not have the luxury of dismissing any of the chapters, I knew I had to find a way to make this chapter work for me. I had to find myself in it. And I have found myself in the chapter. The chapter and the whole big book has to speak to me, Joe, for it to have any meaning for me. Because now I had moved forward in my recovery journey. It was no enough to see you an experience. I did now an experience of my own. I wanted recovery for myself now. I had to have a story. Um, you know, the same kind of recovery that I had seen at that new OA meeting is what I wanted for myself. So I decided to read the chapter with new eyes and an open mind and to seek within it meaning that I could apply to myself. One of the first striking passages for me in this chapter is at the bottom of page 44. It says, if a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many would have recovered long ago. But we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us, no matter how much we tried. We could wish to be moral, we could wish to be philosophically comforted, we could will these things with all our might, but the needed wasn't there. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Wow. They are so telling my story here. How did they know me? I mean, they wrote this chapter in 1939, and I wasn't born until 1962. Now, how did they know me? I had a code of morals. I had philosophies of life. I believed in these codes and these philosophies wholeheartedly. I discussed them at length with friends, family members, these codes and philosophies, onto anyone who would listen. I relished the opportunity. But did these codes and philosophies save me from overeating? No. Did they ever help me get abstinent? No. Did they ever remove the compulsion to eat? No. They failed utterly. So my belief system was fundamentally deficient. Had my belief system been sufficient, I would not be a compulsive overeater, and my life would be manageable. Because in step one, I admitted that it wasn't just my food I was powerless over. My whole life was unmanageable. And I had a belief system that allowed me to binge my brains out up to 254 pounds and be unhappy in just about every area of my life and have that ongoing inner turmoil. So my belief system now was coming under a microscope, and it was going to have to be radically reexamined. These and philosophies, some of which were related to food, like I should be able to write my own food plan, 
um, clearly had not been powerful enough to save me from an addiction. And like I say, one of my beliefs was that I had to craft my own food plan with no help or input from anybody. Now, I was in Overeaters Anonymous. You know, I was in the fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous. I was coming to meetings every week, and I was a very faithful meeting attender. Really, it was one of the most faithful I was doing. I would say it was the only faithful thing I was doing. I was going to meetings. Sometimes I would go off, and I would go... You know, really, for most of my OA life in that first four years, I was going to two meetings a week, and I sampled a bunch of them in in, in my area. Um, And yet, meeting attendance, I mean, clearly was not sufficient. Um, Another of my philosophies was that my intellect could save me from anything. Um, You know, as I had referenced, this was instilled in me growing up. And, and wow, did I take that lesson and, and run with it. And so, you know, if I had a problem, I could solve that problem by applying my intellect. And if that didn't work, if at first you don't succeed, what do we do? Try, try again. So try harder. Just try harder. Think longer. Repeat the effort. Increase the energy and time you're putting toward this. Hey, if you can't lift that over your head, just try harder not using enough of your muscles, go at it again. Well, failure. These things led to failure over and over and over again. My head was still in the lard bucket and there was nothing I could do about it. And then, again, after coming into Overeaters Anonymous, you know, thinking that I could do OA the way I thought it should be, that also did not work for me. On page 45 in the chapter, We Agnostics, It says, lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. Well, why is this so important? And I just, I I, I love that passage, but why is it so necessary for me to find a power by which I can live and that this power has to be a power greater than myself? Well, it's because in active overeating, I was living on my own power. I was living on willpower. I was living on wishful thinking. I was living on self-justification, selfishness, dishonesty, apathy, and other qualities that make up my ego. And I was using these qualities, first of all, with the food. I mean, all those qualities was playing out, you know, dishonesty with the food and selfishness with the food and manipulation with the food and self-justification. All those qualities that are unsavory personality characteristics, I was playing out with the food. And I was also playing it out in my relationships, at work, with roommates, etc., to to live my life. And so if relying on my own power had for me, if it had made me happy and effective and kept me out of the food, well, like I say, I never would have come to Overeaters Anonymous. But I did come to Overeaters Anonymous because clearly from my history, my reliance on my own power was a complete and utter failure. Now, there was a reason I came to Overeaters Anonymous and did not try another diet plan. There was something, something I knew. There was something inside me that knew those things just flat out would not work. But then what was going to work? Well, the chapter we agnostics goes on to say, but where and how we define this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. 
I love this passage. I love it with my whole heart. It is one of my favorite passages in the entire book. I notice they say problem, singular. I have one problem. And guess what? The problem is not my overeating. The alcoholics who wrote this book were not talking about drinking here. They are not saying that the problem is the excess consumption of alcohol. Nor do I think they are saying that the problem is the obsession for alcohol either, the mental obsession. I do not think that is what they're talking about when they say the problem. Those things, the excess consumption of alcohol and the mental obsession for alcohol, are symptoms of a deeper problem. For me, my overeating, my, the physical act of overeating and the obsession for food, those are symptoms of a much deeper problem. When they say this power greater than myself will solve my problem, they are talking about the problem of my inner life. They are talking about the experience of having my essence rewrited, calmed down, brought back into balance. In some addict like me, that inner essence, when thrown off balance, makes me want to medicate. Because the experience of being thrown off balance is so painful, I can't tolerate that, and I need to soothe it. And the only way I know how to soothe it is with food. So then there's this disturbance, which creates the mental obsession, which then drives me into the food. So to be relieved of that experience, it is not nearly enough to be physically abstinent, nor to believe that a temporary reprieve in the mental obsession is going to fix the problem. Because my problem is deeper than that. What they're talking about here is the need to undergo a fundamental shift in the way I think. And they go into detail about this process in the subsequent pages of this chapter. And I want to touch on some of the passages that challenge me to change my thinking. On page 52 in the chapter We Agnostics, it says, We had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the steadiness to change our point of view. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Wow. I mean, talk about a laundry list of symptoms that I lived with as the result of living by the power of my ego. These things were not caused by physical compulsive overeating. They were caused by my living on the power of my soul. They are confronting me, the addict, with some evidence here that my way of thinking is not working. They name eight specific symptoms of the inner life gone haywire. And they're saying, Joe, if your way of thinking has worked so well, how is it that you have all of these symptoms of an unhappy life that is unfree and not working? We think, Joe, that we can offer you something better. And because of the level of misery I was in and my level of desperation to get out of it, I was willing to listen to these writers. I was willing to be open-minded to what they were saying. They talk on page 53, again in this chapter, about this practice called faith. They say, without knowing it, had we not been brought to where we stood by a certain kind of faith. For did we not believe in our own reasoning? Did we not have confidence in our ability to think? What was that but a sort of faith? This passage makes me take a step back 
and look at, well, what did I have faith in before I came to Overeaters Anonymous? I had faith in my intellect. I had faith in my opinions. You know, I had faith in my belief that people who held opinions different from mine were wrong. I had faith in my willpower, you know, that if I just try hard enough, I should be able to overcome anything. I had faith that I was usually the smartest person in the room. I believed I had to keep other people at a distance in order to protect myself from getting hurt and also to preserve my sense of superiority. I believed that if I something or did something entertaining that other people should be charmed by that and should enjoy making me the center of their attention. I believed that any piece of knowledge I didn't possess must not be very important. I believed I had the right to look down on people and pass judgment on them. I believed if the world did things my way, we would simply have no more problems. And then I carried beliefs into Overeaters Anonymous. I believed that if I went to meetings, I should be okay. I believed I should be able to construct my own food plan. I believed that my sponsors, when I did have sponsors, should go along with everything that I say. And they should just support me in all my decisions. And if they don't support me in my decisions, they're wrong. And I'm going to reject them. Well, this belief system was keeping me in the food because it was, you know, it was married to me. This was, all this stuff was my ego. And my ego and my eating are completely married to each other. You, you, you can't separate them, actually, for somebody like me. So I had a belief system when I came to OA, and I was very faithful to this belief system. I clung to it very, very strongly, and I would not give it up for anything except when I was confronted with the prospect that, hey, Joe, you have to give it up for your survival. You have to give it up. If you want recovery, Joe, if you want what you say you want, you have to give up your belief system. Nobody give up my belief system. No one is that, you know, no one person is that powerful. But I was confronted with, I have got to let go of a belief system that's not working, and I need to have a belief system that will work, even if it's just the um, introduction to a, a new belief system that I think can work. So I, when I came to OA, uh, you know, I was confronted um, with the task of reconsidering. Now it was going to be a requirement for my recovery. And when, when you teach something is a requirement for my recovery, when I'm convinced that it's a requirement for my recovery, well, discussion over. There's, you know, there is, there is no other option. Then that's what I have to do. On page 48 in the chapter we agnostics, it says, faced with alcoholic destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions. In this respect, alcohol was a great persuader. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. And this was my experience. My addiction had beaten me into a state of reasonableness. It forced me to confront the possibility that there was a better, effective way of thinking system I came in here with. That thought system applied to the food, yes, but as I have revealed, it applied to so much more. It was a whole kind of thoughts, a doctrine, really, about how to live. And this and Joe's doctrine had to change if I was going to free. I don't believe in a supernatural being, but I do believe in a power greater than myself. 
I had to come to believe in this power because it was a requirement for my recovery. We Agnostics goes into detail about making the case for the existence of a supernatural being. And what I do with those passages is I translate them for myself so that I'm using the essence of what they're talking about to support and strengthen my recovery. On page 47, they say, do not let any prejudice you may have against spiritual terms deter you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. And I made a decision a long time ago that I was going to take the big book very personally. I was going to apply what they said in here to me, Joe. It has to apply to me personally for it to have any meaning. This process has been essential for my recovery because what did I do under my old personality? I would take a chapter like this and completely reject it. You know, I would just dismiss it out of hand as propaganda and have nothing to do with it. Well, closed-mindedness never did anything except keep me in my ego and in the food. So I made a decision to stick with this chapter, be open to what they were saying. And the payoff has been a learning and growing experience as I have taken in what I consider to be the fundamental lesson of we agnostics, which is I must, I must set aside my previous thought system and embrace a new one. Step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Certainly, my previous thought system could in no way be characterized as sane. It kept me in morbid obesity and at war with myself and the world. But becoming open-minded and considering that there is a power greater than myself, that that power will restore me to sin, has been an essential part of my recovery. Believing that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity has to involve believing that the process in front of me will work. And the process in front of me is the rest of the steps. I need to believe that this process, which I've seen in other people and, and have seen other people benefit from, will work for me too. Even when I couldn't necessarily name it at the time, I was feeling hopeful that I too could be restored as they had been restored. If I followed the process, they had followed. And this was why it was important that I work with a sponsor because that allowed me a closer view of what was possible in this program and it allowed me to rely on the strength of another member in a very personal way. And seeing the results of the program in a group setting at a meeting was one thing, but hearing it more intimately on the phone with a sponsor was another. So that's been an essential part of my experience. I was being presented with a process and I was in a position where I then could come to believe that this process that had transformed and freed others could also transform and free me. So instead of continuing to believe that my own ego could restore me to sanity, I came to believe that this greater power could restore me to sanity. I saw this belief work for others, and I wanted what I saw in those people. And I'm so grateful that the message of the big book was brought to me in such clear and powerful terms. Because I think those of us who have recovered from this condition of stability to those who have not recovered, to tell you um, what it actually means to, to come to believe in a power greater than yourself, that we do not support things like wishful thinking and independent decision-making, you know, as, as recovered people and as sponsors, that we are clear that coming to believe in a power greater than yourself has to include believing that the steps will work for you as they have worked for us. 
So I stood back and said, yes, I believe there is something greater than myself that I can rely on to help me to help lead me out of the hell that I'm in and into a really different life. And my life today is radically different than it was before this new belief took hold. Today, I am free of food obsession. I'm at a normal, healthy weight. I have a job that I love and that I'm good at. I'm less reactive. I'm more productive. I'm more communicative. I'm more generous. I have this ethic. I can see myself in a larger whole. And I can think about how I can contribute to that larger whole. I'm more consistent in my behavior. I'm more disciplined and structured in my life. And I find I thrive on that. And my beliefs have changed. Wow, have my beliefs changed. You know, today my belief system is very different than it was in active addiction. I believe that as I act out of my best intentions, I will be accepted and welcomed into new groups. I believe I can always learn something new and that other people are great sources of knowledge for me. I believe the world is a generous place and all I have to do is be open to that generosity. I believe my contributions matter even when they're small. I believe there are endless things to be grateful for and that I will always be okay as long as I can be grateful. I believe that every single person who walks into the doors of OA has the right to be shown the solution to the problem so they can have hope that they can have that solution. I believe those of us who have recovered have the responsibility to communicate where the instructions are for recovery, and that is in the big book. I believe every compulsive overeater who arrives at step two with a sincere willing to change the way they think has a very good recovery. I believe that no matter what a person's belief system, when they come to OA, that belief system has failed them or they would not be a compulsive overeater. So I believe that whether a person is an atheist like me or an agnostic or someone who's religious, their system of thought is lacking something fundamental as evidenced by their active addiction. So I don't believe any of us has an inherent advantage or disadvantage when we come to the rooms. Since every one of us is faced with the task of admitting defeat, which is a huge shift of the inner self for addicts, and then with coming to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That is another major shift internally. My life has been transformed by this program of recovery. I am not the same person I was. I am different and better because, in fact, a power greater than myself has restored me to sanity. But I first come to believe that that power would restore me to sanity. In the chapter we agnostics, I'm going to reread it. To who feels he is atheist or agnostic, such an experience seems impossible, but to continue as he is means disaster, especially if he is an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. To be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives to face. And I just want to add to this that I think you could substitute the words atheist and agnostic with compulsive overeater. You know, to one who is a compulsive overeater, such an experience seems impossible. But to continue as she is means disaster, especially if she is a compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety. To be doomed to a compulsive overeating death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives. But I just want to tell anyone on this line who needs to hear it, it did seem impossible to me. 
but in fact it was not impossible. I did come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, which allowed me to then grab onto the rest of the process. My life has been transformed. I am a different and better person. My life is 180 degrees better today. And thank you for listening, and I will pass. Thank you so much, Joe. That was quite a personal sharing of your journey to finding this power greater than yourself. You know, the big book tells us that we are all blocked from being able to access this power, and it brings to mind to me whether I am a believer, agnostic, or atheist. It doesn't matter. I can't get to it either. And that's a huge, profound thing, and I believe I heard that part even in your story here today. To find a power by which I could live was clearly defined in what you were sharing today. I had to find a way to live. And I was wondering if you thought you might have time to um, entertain some questions that might be those that are on the line here today. You know, it wasn't just you and I here today. (laughs) There were several other people that joined us to listen to what you had to say, and, and they might have some questions. Do you have time to stick around? Yes, I sure do. Oh, thank you so much. Well, then I'm going to turn our attention then to those on the line that might have some questions this morning for you. Is anyone out there that would like to ask a question to Joe relative to step two, relative to the um, step four, I mean, you know, the chapter four of Reagnostics or her particular journey? Press star one on your phone keypad. Good morning. This is Murphy. May I ask a question? Uh, Good morning. I did hear someone say, may I ask a question, but I didn't catch your name. It's Murphy. Murphy. Good morning, Murphy. Yes, please. Thank you. And I'm sorry, I didn't... Is Joe the speaker? Uh, Yes. Joe, thank you so much for your share. And I guess um, my question would be, you know, as, um, as an atheist, how do you define, and or not even define, how do you get in touch with a power greater than yourself? Um, and if you, if you define it, that would be a great answer, too. And I'll mute to let you answer. Thank you. Yes, well, thank you for the question. Well, I mean, I guess I have a, there are a couple of layers to that. I mean, first of all, it's kind of like the physical experience of, you know, I had this physical experience of, of misery. I mean, I didn't have to believe that I was miserable. I just was. And I came to Overeaters Anonymous. That was a physical experience. I, I went to a building. There were other people there. There were chairs. There was a format. There was a, this physical, you know, this, this obvious experience. Someone could observe what I was doing. And as I, uh, as I went, I mean, how did, how, did I, how did I gain an experience of a power greater than myself was when I got an abstinent food plan and I went through the steps and there was a transformative experience that came as the result of that which released something inside of me that I didn't know was there. Um, and this thing inside of me, I think, has always been there, but it was blocked. Now, the big book talks about that, that we were blocked from the sunlight of the spirit. So I became unblocked, and what came up inside of me was all the best parts of being human. And that's what I conceive when, when other people in the program use the word God, what I think of for myself, the power greater than myself, is it's all the good qualities of being human. You know, it's all, all of our best qualities of humanity. It's being generous, it's being kind, it's being thoughtful, it's practicing restraint where 
uh, you know, saying something or doing something might interfere with another person. Uh, it's being compassionate. It's loving and gentle. It's being um, full. You know, all those you things, you know, all those good qualities. That, for me, is a power greater than myself. So when I use the language, a power greater than myself, it's that very positive energy that I, that's inside me and is also in others and in the world. So I don't know. Does that answer your question, Murphy? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Murphy. Thank you, Joe. Who else would like to ask a question of Joe? Hello? Hello, good morning. This is Jean. Good morning, I have a question. I hear Jean. I hear Jean. Good morning, Jean. And then I'm going to just catch those other two before I let you move on. Who else was asking? Um, this is Mary Lee in Seattle. I'm sorry, I didn't hear somebody from Seattle? Yes, Mary Lee from Seattle. Mary, Mary Lee from Seattle. Okay, thank you. Good morning, Mary Lee. So, Jean, would you go first with your question? And then we'll go with yeah, you after I, Mary Lee. I would like to know the difference between an atheist and an agnostic. I, I know that sounds... Because I know there's there's a difference, and I just I just don't know what that what what that is. Um, I know there's something higher than myself because there's the sky, and there's the ocean, and that's what I that go with. But the, an agnostic and an atheist, could you speak about that? Well, sure. For me, as an atheist, I don't believe in anything supernatural. So that's how I define it for myself. Um, an agnostic is someone who says they don't. They don't know whether or not there is a God. I guess that's where I go. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Jean. That's a very good question. Thanks, Joe. Um, Mary Lee, your turn. Yeah, how does Mary Lee a recovered compulsive overeater? Um, originally from California, but in Seattle for a month. I just want to know what, how you start your day and how you end your day. Well, that's a really good question. Well, I have a very structured, very active life. So when I start my day, um, I mean, I get up in the morning, like, okay, so my alarm goes off at 6 o'clock, and, and I get up and I, I set the intention for the day. Like, okay, I'm going to get up and I have a productive day today. And I do, there are physical things that I do. Um, you know, I, I I feed my cats, I eat my absent breakfast, I take my shower, I get ready. You know, I, I do the physical things that I have to do to get ready for work. Um, and I have phone calls in the morning. I have sponsor and sponsee phone calls in the morning. Um, and I normally... Oh, Jill, press star 8 if, that's, um, if you're getting your recording. Hang on just a minute. That may be the case. Uh, Melanie, can you hear me? I can now. I can now. I, I thought maybe you'd gotten that recording coming on. And always press star 8 if that does come up again. But we lost you for just a couple of seconds there. Okay. Um, so, so, my, so my day, my morning is very compact because of my schedule. So I'm, I'm like setting the intention for the day. Okay. You know, like I'm thinking, what do I need to talk to my sponsor about this morning so that I can, so that I can go out into my day with a sober frame of mind because when I get up in the morning it's like you know I heard this described one time at a meeting it was just so good and the person said 
it's, she said, it's, I can build up a force field against the addiction during the day, but when I wake up in the morning, the force field is at zero, and I have to build it up all over again. And that's been my experience. When I wake up in the morning, like, I'm at zero again, and I've got I to gotta build it up. I have to use my mind to, meaning, I don't mean using my willpower, but I have to use sober thinking to set my intention for the day. Um, and... Uh, so that's like how I, how I start my day. And then I end my day, you know, I do the review of my day. You know, when we retire at night, we constructively review our day. And I go through those questions. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? This another person that were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others, of what we could pack into the stream of life? When I go through and answer all those questions, and then I read that to my sponsor the next day, and I know that my day has gone well, when I have a, a number of things listed in, um, or we're thinking of what we could do for others of what we could pack into the day. So that list of items, um, you know, when that list is a good, healthy list, I know that I've had a sober day. I know that that's been, you know, a good day in recovery. Does that answer your question? Okay, maybe gone oh. Thank you, Mary Lee. Thank you, Joe. Who else would like to ask a question this morning? Press star one on your phone keypad that will unmute you to be able to speak. We have a quiet group here this morning. Hi, this is Frida. I have a question. Hi, good morning, Frida. Yes, go ahead. Um, hi, Joe. Thank you so much. Um, you said that as you started the, you know, you became absent, put the food, and as you started the steps, that's when you kind of knew there was a power greater than you, if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly. Um, so how did you get, and I apologize because I, I got it, phone call in the middle of your talk, so I don't know if you covered this and that, but how did you work step two before you had that psychic change? You know, I was working it without even realizing I was working it. You know, as I, I, I was thinking about this as I was preparing for today, and I remember when my sponsor at the time was leading me through the inventory process, and I... I wanted to, at one point, I wanted to abandon the process. <laughs> and I remember, I remember saying at my meeting, um, I either have to go through this or I'm going to go back to the food. I mean, I just, I knew that. Um, it was, and I think for me, the coming to believe, I think it came in layers. I mean, at first it was, you know, um, first it was establishing my common identity with other compulsive overeaters. And then it was seeing that these people who I have this basic thing in common with found a way out of it. And then I believed in, I believed in their experience. And that was enough to hold me over for a while, but then that, what, that soon became not enough. And uh, I continued to have disturbances and I continued to like, you know, go back into the food. And so 
Uh, and I remember one time um, thinking that I just worked the tools I'll recover. And then that wasn't enough. And I just, I kept being faced with the reality that avoiding the steps was not working for me. You know, avoiding these, these um, avoiding the rest of the steps and, and, and in some ways avoiding step one all the way um, was not working for me. It wasn't producing results. So I thank goodness for my upbringing because I was taught to be very resilient and to be very, some, in some ways, stubborn. And those things really worked for me in this regard because I stubbornly refused to give up on the experience in Overeaters Anonymous. And I just continued to search um, longer sponsors. I continued to search out meetings. Um, and I, at one point, I think I insisted, I think it was an insistence on believing that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I think it was my way of countering some of the stuff I had had earlier in my life, which was I was kind of, I was, um, I don't know, I, I, I had seen myself as separate and apart for so long that I was subject to a different set of rules than everyone else. Um, and I think my unhappiness with my, my addiction was so deep that uh, it triggered a, a deep desire to come out of that. I mean, the hotter the hell, the more you want to get out of it, right? The more you want to escape that. Um, so I had a built-in, I guess I would say, I had a built-in incentive to keep looking and to keep challenging my thinking. I mean, I remember I had been in LA for uh, three years and I had not picked up the big book and I had a relapse. And I thought, well, you know, Joe, you've got to do something you haven't done before because obviously what you've been doing isn't working. Maybe you start reading that big book. So I remember I purchased uh, a soft cover copy. So I'm thinking, well, I'll, I'll purchase one, but I don't want to make too big of an investment by getting the hard cover. So I got the soft cover. I started reading it. I was just like, wow, it was so different than what I had expected. It was accessible and um, it was totally, it was story format and it was um, and it was funny. And I remember I remember the, when I read the passage in Bill when he's talking to Ebby and he said, oh yeah, he's you know he, he's not cracked about religion. I just I laughed at that and I thought, wow, there's humor in here. I didn't know that. So I started having experiences. I started getting the payback of using a little bit of open mindedness. You know, these experiences of, of being a little more open-minded. I remember one time hearing someone talk about how she had given up um, flour, and I thought, there's no way I can give up flour. Well, you know, I kept having problems with flour. So again, there again, the incentive to, to reconsider my thinking. The incentive to reconsider my thinking was based on my experience. And for me, you know, my beliefs had based in my experience. You cannot just give me a belief and say, well, hey, this is something nice to believe in. Yeah, you know, isn't that, a, isn't that a nice notion? Come to believe in a power greater than yourself. Isn't that a sweet kind of thing to think about? And doesn't that make you feel good? And doesn't that kind of make you feel comfortable? See, that doesn't work for somebody like me. But if you say, hey, Joe, you know, look at, your, look at how you are living today. Is how you're living working for you? I mean, is it really working for you? And if there's anybody on this line who's in this place, you know, ask yourself that question. Is the way that you are living right now working for you? You know, I mean, are you, are you really free with the way you're eating? 
Are you really free in the way you're interacting with your family members? Are you really free in the way that you're navigating your work life? How are your relationships? I mean, take a look at those bedevilments. You know, they, they list eight of them. I mean, they're very specific. Do you have any of those? Do you think that, that your isolated way of thinking is really serving you? That's where I had to be. Is my isolated way of thinking working for me? No, it is not. So I did not abandon my former belief system all at once. It came in layers, and it continues to come in layers because there are, I mean, there are things that I think now that I wouldn't have thought of. You know, my thinking continues to be challenged um, to be, you know, more open-minded, and re- let's reconsider it again. It is, a, it is an ongoing process. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you so much. Thank you, Frida. Thank you, Joe. Would anyone else like to ask Joe a question this morning? Yes, could I have Joe's number? I have to hang up. Joe, do you feel comfortable giving that on a recorded line? We typically give that out after the recording has stopped, but that would be your decision, Joe. Yes, I'd be happy to give my phone number now. It is 612-377-4502, and that is Central Time U.S. Thank you so, so much. I appreciated your qualification very much. Welcome. Bye bye. Bye now. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Anyone else would like to ask Joe a question this morning? I have a question for Joe. Hi, good morning. Who's this? Hey, my name is Donna A. Compulsive Overeater. Good morning, Donna. Go ahead. Joe, you mentioned you knew you had a problem with flour. How do you know when you have a problem with this? How would maybe I would like to know? I guess how did you know you had a problem with flour? Well, that's a really great question. Um, I remember having given up sugar, and I was still eating not white flour, but I was eating um, like whole wheat. I would eat whole 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 grain type types of flours, and um, remember having I was in Overeaters Anonymous, and I remember having visions of binging on something without the sugar. Because I had this fantasy, okay, I'm going to make this baked good thing. I won't put any sugar in it, but I'll I'll make it without the sugar. And then it dawned on me the main ingredient of what I was using was flour. That was one thing that helped me to realize my problem. And then, so that was like the beginning of like it was. It, it just it, it just came in layers. Like that was that was one thing that that happened. Um, and. Uh, Another thing that happened was I remember that I had said to myself, okay, I'm going to, um, I, was in, I was in a shop, it was in a, one of these specialty shops where they sold bread items, not sweetened, but br- other kinds of bread items. And I remember I was in there and I was going to be careful not to get anything with sugar, but it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh my God, all the stuff that's in flour. And it's overwhelming feeling because it was just, it was hitting me at a deeper level now. Oh, my gosh. I'm going for flour. Oh, my gosh. So but I, I kept eating flour, and like a few months later, I said, okay, 
I'm going to get rid of all the flower products in my home. I'm not going to swear off flower. I'm just going to get rid of it in my home. I'm just going to see how I do. So I got rid of it in my home. Then I was out, I was out to lunch with actually some other compulsive overeaters. Um, and we were ordering, and I ordered my food, and I said, and, and this particular food item was going to come with the flower product on the side. And I said, please just leave off the blankety-blank, the flower product on the side. And so they left it off, but, in, but instead, they, so they didn't bring that thing, but it came with crackers, just these those, those saltine crackers. And without thinking about it, without it just, I just, when it came, I opened up the saltine crackers and I started eating. It was almost like someone else was in charge of my hands. And I remember thinking at the time, I can't control what I'm doing. This, and after that experience, I knew. Okay. Saltines have no, that, that's the only thing on them is flour, a little bit of salt. Like, oh my gosh. So it was, it was a process of thinking about it, hearing others, but you know, the, um, the, internal uh, realization I was doing with flour and how I was thinking about flour. So after that restaurant experience, like, okay, I'm done. Mm, Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Joe. Anyone else with a question for Joe this morning? Hi, this is Joan. This is Miriam from Israel. Can I ask you a question? You betcha. Just one moment, Miriam. I heard Joan, but you're kind of faint back in the background. Can you come a little closer to the mic? Uh, Sure. Uh, Is this better? Not quite. You're almost there, but we can hear you. I don't mean to cause a problem. Good morning, Joan. And then, Miriam, you can go after Joan. Okay. So I just want to thank you. This morning I was going to make the phone call to a person that was going to help me find the perfect combination of foods that I should have because I've been having problems. And I've been having problems in my life that I had a lot of trouble dealing with. And when I heard you today, I knew, I know that what's happening is that I have fallen away from the second step. Everything that you said about your prior life is my my history, the babysit, oh, And I just want to tell you thank you because just from switching from a previous meeting this morning to this one, it's helped me get my direction back. Thank you. And I will take steps today. Thank you. Okay. That sounds good, Joan. Thank you, Joan. Miriam, it's your turn. Yes. My name is Miriam. I'm a compulsive overeater recovered from Israel. And thank you, Joe, so much. And I wanted to ask you if you can repeat this part in your qualification where you said that your problem was not the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind, but it was something else deeper. And I want to ask you to repeat this this, uh, words of you, what you said. You remember that? Yes, you know, in the chapter we agnostics on page 45, it says lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how were we to find this power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And I think it's very significant that they use the word problem singular, 
because they're they don't say it's going to solve my problems plural because I have problems. I mean, everybody has problems. The program of recovery is not going to solve my problems plural. It's going to solve my problem singular. So, I mean, what is that problem? I mean, is is the problem the overeating? I mean, I've stopped overeating a thousand times, but I couldn't stay stopped. Why is that? Because I had an obsession. I mean, even when I was abstaining from my binge foods, I would obsess about food. So then what was, you know, what what, what is at the root of the obsession for food? So the compulsion over eating itself and the obsession for, for food are both symptoms. They are not themselves the problem. They are a manifestation of the problem. They are the result of the problem. The problem is a dissonance inside. It is a turmoil. It is an internal turmoil that is so severe that it is producing a need to medicate. And that's what the mental obsession is. And it, Okay, I'm in pain. Now I've got to obsess so that I can go get something to medicate. So the root of the problem is that dissonance. Um, you know, we use the term spiritual. Whether you want to use the term spiritual or some other word, you know, the point is that something is going on deep inside the compulsive overeater that is off-center, off-kilter, off-balance. It is a, it's distorted. It is something twisted. It's our insides twisted into knots. And those knots have to be untangled and kept untangled so that we don't want to medicate, so that we're free of the obsession. Because we know, we've, we've all been on diets. We know the pain of that. Dieting is painful. That's why we don't stick with diets. It's not because we don't have willpower, because eating is just like makes me want to jump out of my skin. So we know that putting a container around the food is not an answer for us. Putting a container around the food is simply a prerequisite for people like us. And then we have to go further. We have to look at in that abstinent state. Now we're not, we're not covering up our stuff with the excess food. Now we've got, now our minds at least are clear to have the opportunity to come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity and then to take the rest of the steps in that physically sober state. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you, Joe. Anyone else have a question for Joe before we end our Sunday session today? I do. My name is Toby. Good morning, Toby. Yes, go ahead. Joe, when you were at the beginning of being recovered, when you had your spiritual awakening at the beginning, and did you have food thoughts? The reason I ask is I feel that I related a lot to what you said and um, your your um, journey. And I have been experiencing um, a spiritual awakening, feel closer to God than I ever have. And for the first time in in quite a few months, I had very strong food thoughts last night, and it kind of scared me. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for the question, Toby. Um, well, in answer to your question, yes. Yes, I did have food thoughts, and that's because I had not gotten to the, 
the core yet of my uh, my internal uh, turmoil. Um, and, and there is a misperception, I think, in Overeaters Anonymous, that somehow when you start to have a spiritual awakening, now you can suspend your work. Well, gee, I've started to have it. Well, I should be able to coast for a while. I think it's important, Toby, that you use the language the first time in quite a few months. You said for the first quite a few months, I had food thoughts. That is always a flag to me when I ever hear anybody in Overeaters Anonymous talk about chronological time. I would... uh, I would suggest that you take a look at how are you thinking about your recovery in an overarching way. Do you need, and this is not something for you to answer now, Toby, it's just something for you to ask yourself. Do you believe that you can coast? Do you ever believe you can ever coast in this program? Do you believe that you can go a few months Kind of like doing doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Maybe you've got an absent food plan. You've got a meeting. You're feeling okay and that you can go for a few months. Because if that's how you're thinking, total setup. That is a, a way of thinking about recovery that goes counter to what the actual requirement for recovery is. The big book says... Uh, we are not cured of alcoholism, for alcohol is a subtle foe. What we have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And how is that spiritual condition maintained? Well, first of all, I mean, we've got to go through those first nine steps. Uh, we've, got to, we've got to admit defeat, come to believe a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. We have to make a decision to give our will and our life over to the care of that power. Then we have to do the inventory process. Step four, step five, you know, writing it out, writing it all out, giving it all away, looking at the personality characteristics that have caused our problems, becoming willing to make amends and correct those behaviors that, that came out of our, you know, our drive to run the show ourselves. We've got to go out and make amends. We've got to clear up the wreckage of our past, which then unblocks us. Now we're unblocked. Now we can live in the present day, but now what do we do? We've got to keep going. Step 10, what is that? That's to catch any new disturbances as they come along, but really our quest is to live in steps 11 and 12. Step 11, you know, um, thought through prayer and meditation to, to improve our conscious contact with God. understood him praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. So that's there are keeping the connection going and then taking that connection and making it manifest in the real, I shouldn't say in the real the world. So getting then to step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. So what are we doing now? Now we're living in steps 11 and 12. Step 11 is like a gas station. I'm going and getting gas. Thank you very much. I got my gas. Now I'm hitting the road. I'm hitting the road to step 12. I'm out there in the world interacting and doing my stuff, manifesting the 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 results of this program. It's daily. Not only is it daily, it's multiple, 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 multiple times a day, every single day, no matter what, seven days a week. I don't want to say 24 hours because we're not awake 24 hours, but 16 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year with no end. And not only that, we've got to continue to grow, and the big book talks about that. We have to continue to grow in effectiveness. 
Um, we cannot, the big book says we cannot rest on our laurels. And it isn't just because the big book says it, because that's my experience, and that's what I've seen in others. We cannot rest on our laurels. This program is very, very, very active. It, it constantly, I am constantly engaging the program. There is no let up. It is a 16 hour day, 16, 18 hour day job, seven days a week. 365 days a year, year after year after year after year, and it will be less until the day I die. So if, if you, Toby, or anyone on this line is thinking of recovery as something you can achieve and then go for a while without doing more work, you will pay the consequences. I pay the consequences of that. And it sounds like you are also paying the consequences by these food thoughts because food thoughts are painful. And you don't have to go back into the... And also, it's not enough to physically abstain. As you yourself are indicating, Toby, I mean, you've got food thoughts and you, by the, by the fact that you're expressing it this morning, it is a problem. Having, even if, when you're abstinent, having food thoughts is a problem because it's painful to have food thoughts. We don't want the thoughts because then what do we do with the food thoughts? Now we have to resist them, right? We have to fight it. Well, what does the big book say? We have stopped fighting anything or anyone. So we're not supposed to be in fight mode. You're not supposed to be, I mean, the promise of the program, Toby, is not that you're going to have food thoughts and we'll get into them. The promise is that you're going to have a psychic change, you're going to have personality change, you're going to be more effective. You won't have the food thoughts. So I would recommend that you take this issue to your recovered sponsor. If you have a recovered sponsor, if you don't, get one. And really take a look at what, what is missing. Something. See, when I, when I hear someone say they're having food thoughts, that's a major red flag to me. Huge. That is huge, huge, huge. Do not underplay this at all. I don't think you are. I mean, but I, I just want to encourage you to really pay attention to this. This is major. Something fundamentally is off or you would not be having food thoughts. Food thoughts are like the canary in the mind. I would say one of two things is going on. Either you're ingesting food that is causing a physical problem, which is helping to trigger the food thoughts, or there's something spiritually or you know, internally off that is manifesting this, which is invariably a resentment. But if I were working with you as a sponsee, I would, I would, this is huge. I mean, and I, I, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I think underplay this kind of thing in Overeaters Anonymous. When someone says they're having food thoughts, we should not be saying, well, just keep coming back. Well, it take, you know, recovery takes time. BS. You know, you need to, have, I would like you to have the freedom today that I have, Toby, and you can have it. And I, so I would, if I were you, take this very, very seriously, call your recovered sponsor immediately and have her get, you know, help you with getting to the heart of this matter. Well, I thank you, Joe, um, and I, that's why I asked the question, because I have, I have been doing everything that you're saying, because I've been around for a long, long time and in and out of relapse and for the first time I've been uh, working the program every single day, every part of it, turning to God. I've done the steps, including the ninth step. I do an 11th, 10th, 11th on a daily basis. Um, I spend a lot of time on program. Um, and so, and I've cleaned up my food tremendously. Um, and yet, Last night, for the first time, when I'm in months, I, I'm, I'm not that I'm counting, 
but I was shocked that the food thoughts came. I mm-hmm. was extremely tired. I was overtired, and nevertheless, I've been overtired before, and the food thoughts didn't come. So I will look at seeing what was going on if mm-hmm. there is something there, but um, it really it did scare me. Well, then I would like to direct you, um, Toby, to page 84 in the big book. In the middle of the chat, in the middle of the page, it says, This thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. We vigorously commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. We have entered the world of the spirit. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. This is not an overnight matter. It should continue for a lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help, love and tolerance of others is our code. Now, often if, you know, if you've, you've, you've got your phone cleaned up and you've been working the program and you have food thoughts, you may have a new resentment come up and maybe you don't realize it's a resentment. Right. right. I would take a look at, you know, yourself. Do you have any resentments? Are there, is there anything that went on that day or in the past week or whatever, last month or whatever, that has made you feel resentful? And it could be anything. Um, that would be the question I would ask you. Um, See, I ask myself that question. I fill out a, uh, a, a template that I have somebody gave me that has all these questions on it, and I do this every single night. And, but nothing came up. Okay, but that's not step that's step 11. Step 11 is we constructively review our day. That is in the step 11 section of the big book. Then step 11 is different from step 10. Step 10 is on page right. 84. Step 11 starts on page 85 and goes to the rest of the chapter. So that constructively review our day at night, that is step 11. That's, okay. that's seeking to improve our okay. conscious content with a power greater than ourselves. Step 10 is there to catch new disturbances as they come up and to clean them up quickly. So I would say go to go to page 84. It is the second full paragraph uh, of that page. Read through that and and see what, what strikes you. Okay. I thank you, Joe. You're welcome. Toby, thank you, Joe. Um, before we close the session today, is there anyone else that has a question for Joe? So it sounds like that we are coming to the end. Thank you so much, Joe, for what you have offered here today and the extra the extra bit of instruction that you gave to Toby this morning. And I'm glad that you gave out your phone number. For those that may want that extra instruction, it sounds like that you have to offer that they can call you personally with that kind of information. Thank you again so much. As I continue to, to um, be graced with being recovered, I continue to find that the power greater than myself is shaping and changing all the time and getting broader yet smaller in some places. And so I very much appreciate your perspective today. I learned a great deal. You're welcome. And what I'm going to do here is just close today a vision for you like we always do each Sunday that we have this special edition by reading page one for the book. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is there. The answers will come if your own house is in order. Bobby, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. 
see to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.